time in Jerusalem, which corresponds to our celebration of Easter. It was a particularly sacred time on the Jewish calendar. And during this time, there were thousands of people who came from all corners of the world to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, Jewish law said that every man, uh, every male who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem had to come to the Passover. Thousands beyond those men showed up that day to really pack the place. So Passover, as it approached, Jesus and his disciples as well headed to Jerusalem. The Holy Son of God, the Lamb of God, was about to come to Passover to be sacrificed. Now what you should also know is that Jesus at this time was at the very peak of his popularity. For three years now, he had been traveling through the area, he had been preaching and teaching, he was healing people, and word spread about him like wildfire. People were coming to see, as Kevin read to you before, this new prophet. But Jesus staged his entry into Jerusalem in a rather dramatic fashion. He sent some of his disciples out to go and get a, a donkey and a colt, and he rode them into Jerusalem through the streets. Now, this was not insignificant, and I hope you caught that also in today's reading, because it's a prophecy. One of the 330-some prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah that were spoken in the book of Zechariah. Matthew quotes it, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you got this picture as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. You've got a large crowd gathering. Some are laying their cloaks on the ground. Some are waving those palm branches in the air. And they are shouting as Jesus comes into those streets. They are shouting, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai Hoshanah. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now we know that after that celebration... Some of you remember Paul Harvey. He always used to have the rest of the story. You know, there's more story here than just that triumphant entry because after that entry, where does Jesus go? Jesus goes to the temple. And there he creates quite a stir. He turns over the tables in the temple. He chases the animals. He chases the merchants out. Now the question is, why does he do that? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. But first we want to look a little bit closer at our text. And what I want to explore this morning in this story is a lesson in how we, you and I, need to welcome Jesus into our lives and how this church, too, needs to learn how to welcome Jesus. There are four prayers that I can draw out of this text today. Four prayers that we need to cry out to God. They're pretty easy prayers for you to remember that will put him in the place that he deserves in our lives. And here is the very first prayer. Save us. Save us. It's just that simple. As the people entered Jerusalem, they were waving those palm branches, and what were they shouting? Hosanna! Now, what does Hosanna mean? We generally think it means, wow, wow, hey, Jesus, over here, or something. Or like, yay, Jesus. But really, what the word Hosanna means is literally, God, save us. God, save us. The people were acknowledging Jesus was this Messiah. He was the one who came to what? Save the people of Israel. They saw him as their savior. They just weren't quite sure what kind of savior they were looking for. And they didn't realize that this lamb who is coming in on a donkey 
was that Passover lamb whose blood would be shed for the sins of the whole world. See, they did not understand at this time yet about the atonement, the atoning death of Jesus, that through his death our sins would be forgiven and we'd have eternal life. Now, not even the disciples fully understood, in spite of spending three years with Jesus. And still they shouted out to the Messiah, Hosanna, God, save us. See, with that prayer, we welcome God. We welcome Jesus. We sang this morning, Hosanna, sweet Hosanna. It's a prayer of total, absolute, utter dependence on God. It says, God, I can't save myself. I need you in my life. I need you to be my Messiah. I need you to be my Savior. Protect me, Lord, from myself. And see, that's really where our whole relationship with God begins. It comes as God creates the spark in the heart of faith, like in little Ian this morning through baptism. It comes when a person boldly stands up like our confirmands will in a number of weeks to say, yes, Jesus is my Savior and Lord. But yet, this is something that doesn't just happen at baptism, doesn't just happen at confirmation. It's something that needs to happen each and every day. We never get to the point where we don't depend on Jesus. We never get to the point where we don't need him to save us. And save us from what? Well, certainly to save us from all of our sins. But I think there are probably a few people here this morning who probably need to be saved from themselves. And they need to be saved from the situations that they find themselves in. There may be some of you here this morning that are struggling with a situation that you just plain simple cannot figure out how to fix. You've tried. You need to say, God, save me. Some of you may be struggling with sins and self-defeating habits that have haunted you and followed you for years. Then your prayer needs to be, God, save me. God, help me. Now, I'm not just talking about some sort of a salvation experience here. I'm talking about everyday Christ follower Christian living. We need to pray, God, save me from my sins. Save me from myself. Save me from my situation. I can't make it through this world by myself. See, if you want to make this journey from birth to heaven, if you want to make that journey of holiness, the foundation of our lives needs to be total and complete dependence on God. The same can be said for this church. In fact, the same should be said for every church in this world that claims to be a Christian church. If we want churches to be the place that achieves the it fulfills the vision that God lays out for his church, which is to do what? Make disciples of all nations. The only way that's going to happen is not by depending on your pastor, not by depending upon your leadership board. It's by depending upon God with all we have. Our attitude, even as a church, ought to be this, God, we can't do what you've asked us to do without you. We need your help to accomplish what you have called us to do. And see, this is also the same attitude that we need to communicate to our community. You know, it's not enough just to have a building parked on a street where there's a lot of traffic goes by. It's not enough to have a wonderful organist or have a good praise band. It's not enough to have sermons if all we're doing is attracting attention to ourselves. Something I read earlier this morning by Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if I can remember the exact quote. He said, but we are to be making disciples 
not entertaining repeat customers. I like that. I mean, Spurgeon understood that in the 1800s. We are to be making disciples, not entertaining repeat customers. See, we need to attract attention. I pray that God notices this place. I pray that God notices that you, when you all beat the Baptists to Bryce or to other places, that they know by your love or how you treat one another that maybe they're going to ask you where you came from. We need to make it clear, though, this church doesn't save you. Jesus can. This church cannot get your life straightened out, but Jesus can. The message of this church and the cry of our hearts has to be the same. God, save us. We cannot do it without you. Hosanna. Here's the second prayer. Cleanse us. Now, I told you before, after that triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Jesus does something really bizarre. Let me read it to you in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area, drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the branch and, and the benches of those selling doves. Why did Jesus do that? Well, as I mentioned before, thousands of people had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. One requirement of every last worshiper who came to Jerusalem for Passover was to pay the temple tax and to offer a sacrifice. Those are the two requirements. You had to come, pay your tax, offer a sacrifice. The amount of the tax was about a half a shekel. It had to be paid, though, in a certain kind of currency. Now, throughout Palestine, there were all kinds of different currencies, but they all traded pretty much even. But the temple tax had to be paid with temple money. And so in the temple were a whole bunch of money changers, and if you didn't have the correct currency, the temple money, they would exchange it for you, kind of like exchanging pesos and the dollars at the, at the border. But here was a catch. They tacked on a surplus charge to that exchange. And if you didn't have the exact change equal to a half shekel of temple money, there was a surplus charge on top of the surplus charge. So you got a general idea that these people were cleaning up. I mean, sincere people were making their pilgrimage to the temple to worship their God, and they were forced to pay out-of-line exchange rates. It was a corrupt and oppressive system. And by the way, it is said that during the days of Jesus, nearly 9,000 people made their living working in the temple. You can well imagine why people were cranky at Jesus when he drove them out. Well, if that's not enough, you've got to have a dove. You remember the story? Remember when Mary and Joseph went and they brought a dove when Jesus was baby? Well, doves were used in the sacrificial ritual. And the law required that the dove be spotless and without blemish. And, of course, they had a priest sitting there, and he would be glad to inspect the dove you brought to make sure that it was spotless and suitable for sacrifice. Now, that being said, you could bring your own dove. You, know, you could raise doves at home, bring your own dove. But it was common knowledge that any dove brought from the outside was never going to pass inspection. So in order to get a dove that was going to pass inspection, guess where you had to buy it? In the temple. And guess what? Those temple doves cost a whole lot more than them Walmart doves. 
It's kind of like going to the movies these days where you can't bring in your outside candy and they charge you four bucks for an Almond Joy bar. Well, the merchants kind of had this same kind of racket going off. And the result was that all these sincere people who came and wanted to worship were being forced to pay through the nose. It was a corrupt and oppressive system that was backed by the Pharisees and 9,000 other people who were making their money in that temple area. And what does Jesus do? He comes and he raises havoc. It says he overturned the tables. He drove out all of the money changers. And in John's gospel, it even goes so far as to say Jesus made himself a whip and chased the animals out of the place. And then he stood there and said with great authority, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, friends, I got to tell you, Jesus is never going to ignore corruption. He will never, ever ignore corruption, especially when it comes to matters of religion, when it comes to this body of Christ, the church. Now, I've heard many sermons on this topic before where the emphasis of the preacher was placed on doing the same thing Jesus did, that we ought to all get charged up and we need to stand up for sin. We need to cry out against corruption. We need to kick over tables. We need to whip on sinners. Okay. There's no question that we need to speak out on things. No question at all. But before we start going on a rampage at Cinemark 14, you know, maybe we ought to look at this from a slightly different angle, like from the biblical angle. I want you to ask yourself this question. Can I ask you this question, John? Sure I can. If Jesus came into the temple of your life, what tables would he kick over? Now, you don't need to answer that. You're welcome. <laughs> I could ask Bobby that question. I could ask James that question. What would Jesus like to drive out of your temple, James? In what area of our life have we made an alliance with corruption that goes against the grain of everything that God has called us to be? See, our prayer needs to be what? God, cleanse me. Cleanse me like you cleanse the temple. Drive out everything in me that's not pleasing in me. You know the interesting thing about corruption? It rarely ever happens overnight. It's gradual. We move a little bit away from the middle, kind of towards the left. And we keep kind of moving little by little over to the left to the point where the left actually becomes the middle. And we kind of get settled in to all kinds of stuff. Compromise after compromise to the point where we are comfortable with corruption. I could preach any number of sermons on the corruption that's going on in America that supposedly God-fearing people say, it's all, not all that bad. It would be a good series, wouldn't it? Hmm. Abortion. Hmm. Gambling. Hmm. There's a long list of stuff, isn't there? And we're very comfortable with a lot of it. I always remember when somebody at t told me in church, you're never going to preach about gambling, are you? And I said, why not? And they said, because we like to do it, and when we win, so does the church. 
I felt like somebody had put a gun to my head. Pastor, you don't be preaching about that subject. You know what I preached about the next Sunday? Jesus, cleanse me. Here's our third prayer. Hear us. Hear us. Verses 15 and 16. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what these children are saying, they asked. Jesus replied, he was quoting Psalm 8. Yes. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? I, I love this. Because it was a time when Jesus was coming in. People were, were shouting praises to Jesus. And the, the Pharisees said, to the disciples, tell Jesus to be quiet. Tell the, tell the people to be quiet. And Jesus said, look, if the people don't do it, the rocks will cry out. That's when Jesus said rock music was okay. Well, not, that's not exactly what that means. But Jesus said, you know, I can, I can even have these inanimate things bring praise. That's what I want. I want praise. That's what he still wants from us today. Praise. Praise and worship are part of when we get together because praise is important to God. I mean, there's all kinds of Bible passages. I mean, Deuteronomy 32, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of God. First Chronicles, declare his glory. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord, praise his name. Hebrews, through, there you go, here's a Hebrews passage for you, Ted. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of what? Praise. The fruit of the lips. See, the way we welcome Jesus into our lives and into this church is through praise and worship. The Bible says God inhabits the praise of his people. God lives in the praise of his people. And so when we begin to praise him, when we sing our opening song, Hosanna, when we sing whatever the next song is we're going to sing today, which is Hosanna, that's the choir. When we sing right on, right on in majesty, and we are praising his name, God lives in that. But you know, some people kind of hold back from that. And I'm not sure why people hold back from full out-and-out praise and worship. Maybe it's because they don't feel like they're worthy. Maybe they feel like they're a little bit afraid and people will look at them funny. So they kind of hold back during the worship service. They hold back during their private devotions. They feel unworthy. But I got news for you. Even the best of us here this morning is unworthy. I mean, what is worship? Worship is worth-ship. We do it because he is worth it. That's where worship really comes. And worship, guess what? Worship, litargia, give you a little Greek lesson, has to do with work. Worship is work. You've got to work at it. But it's fun work. See, praise isn't saying, Lord, look at me, how clean I am and holy I am. I bet you love that, don't you? Well, that's not praise because it's, it's not about us at all. It's all about him. He is worthy of praise. And each and every one of us needs to make it a daily habit to offer up praise and worship to God. Here's the fourth prayer. Use us. Use us. Comes into Jerusalem, drives everybody out of the temple, and immediately, verse 14 says, the blind and the lame came into the temple and he healed them. You wonder how people missed who Jesus was. Because the Old Testament said that when the Messiah comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dumb will speak, the lame will walk. And Jesus walks through the whole country doing what? 
healing blind people, healing deaf people, healing people who cannot speak, healing the lame. Here he was doing it. Jesus cleanses the temple, but what does he do? He immediately goes back to the reason why he was sent. Jesus did not get sidetracked in his ministry. He did not suddenly put together a committee on temple cleansing as a new focus of his ministry. He didn't start looking around for churches who were holding bake sales in the lobby and kick over the table and trample on the brownies. He went back to doing job one. He went back to healing the sick, healing the blind, ministering to people. See, in our lives, we need to stay focused on doing job one as well. We need to avoid the temptations that cause us to get sidetracked on issues that are really not our top priority. Now, there are some times when secondary issues demand our attention. We need to take care of secondary things. But they must never become our top priority, especially as a church. What is our top priority? It's not providing a place for satisfied customers to show up every week. Not really. Kind of a secondary issue. It's bringing people into the kingdom of God. That's what God's called us to do. And you know, some churches never get around doing that. You know why? They get sidetracked. They get sidetracked by political agendas. Can't get along with each other. They get sidetracked by social agendas. They get sidetracked by economic agendas. You know, don't have enough money or they got too much money. But our agenda needs to be, first and foremost, bringing people into the kingdom of God. Now, we had one minor little example of it this morning in the baptism. One person was added into the kingdom of God. But you know that's addition. What we really need to do is, first of all, we need to avoid subtraction. But we need to deal with multiplication. There are more out there. And that's why our prayer needs to be, God, use me. Use me to do your work here on earth. I mean, just as Jesus reached out to hurting people, help me reach out, help me make a difference in someone else's life. Well, I end up by just asking you this question. Do you want to see the glory of God rise up in your life? Do you want to see the glory of God rise up in this church? If so, there are four pretty good prayers for you to be praying. God, save us. God, cleanse us. God, hear us. God, use us. Use us to do your work in this world. We depend completely on you. Remove everything that isn't of you. Offering our praise, listen to us. And help us be your hands and feet. This is how we welcome Jesus into our lives. And this is how we welcome him into our church. And this is how we give him free reign to do his will through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise for all the great and many things that you've done for us. And you give us so many reminders, so many little ways to practice what it is that we are to be about. And so we pray that you will kind of plant deep in our hearts this morning some simple little prayers. The little prayers that ask you very simply to save us, to save us from ourselves and from our sin.
to cleanse us from all the impurities and to hear us as we sing your praises and then to use us in your kingdom to make disciples. We pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.